Alrighty, so today we are completing, finally, after 12 weeks, our series on the paradigm. A paradigm, of course, is a framework for reading and understanding the Bible. We want you to be able to read and understand the Bible in an informed way. And so we've been working through this paradigm or framework for understanding the scriptures. And today we are at the last pillar of the framework. And the name of the message is Not What But Who. And I'm going to introduce you, yes, to a pillar that will help you to read and understand the Bible. But it also is a principle that if you get this, has the power to transform your life has the power to transform your relationships, like your marriage or your family relationships. It has the power to transform your work life and your career. It has the power to transform, and this is what, of course, I'm particularly interested in, your interaction with and your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and with your relationship with the church. If you get this, it will transform your life. Now, one of my, one of my uh, goals, I, I've heard this in a newly stated way, and so I really want this hour to be the most valuable hour of your week. I want you to go away from this hour, whether you're here, right here, listening online, watching on video, I want you to go away saying, wow, that was really valuable. And I believe that the principle that we're going to talk about today really does have that kind of power that you could look back on this day and say, that was the day that really changed my perspective and changed my life. Now, um, the title, as I said, is not who, not what, but who. And it all has to do with the question that we ask going into any particular situation. And the big question that I put up that we're going to answer today is this one. Is it really necessary, I added in your bulletins, you'll see, is it really necessary to be a part of a church congregation. I mean, if anything, uh, the last two years has definitely challenged that assumption, right? It used to be, if you wanted to go to church, you had to get out of bed, you had to dress presentably, you had to get in your car or at least take a little bit of a walk to get somewhere and then show up at a particular time and at a particular place if you wanted to be a part of a church congregation. Well, already the trend was away from that type of habit in our culture and in our experience. Even before the the, um, pandemic, it was possible to just show up online and to watch something online and to attend church in that way. And then, of course, with the pandemic, we all had to make some huge adjustments in order to carry on and participate in church And perhaps part of your experience is, well, you began to question that. Do I really need to go to all that trouble? I can just roll over in my bed, reach on my nightstand and pick up my phone and hit a couple of of spots on the screen and I'm watching church. I'm showing up 
at church. Now, I recognize, for those of you that are in the room, I'm a little bit of like, this is almost literally as close as you can get to preaching to the choir. Because you guys are here, but... Remember that there is a large part, or a significant part at least, of our congregation that we're speaking to that is on video and is showing up in whatever way technology allows. And that's great. And of course, we are very glad to have you with us. So I get that I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, but this is still valuable to you because of the principle that we'll talk about, which can transform all of your relationships and... Because there's probably going to be a time where you or someone that you know or love is going to be asking this question. It may be because of an experience that they had in church that was not so good. It may be because of a health issue or a change in location or an opportunity to change job. There are all kinds of reasons why you or someone you know or someone you love might be asking this question. And the pillar that we're going to talk about ties into this idea, and the principle that we're going to focus on, I think, answers this question definitively. You'll never guess where I come down on this question. But let's talk about it. Uh, Let's first off bring the whole paradigm to you. And before we get into the principle and the whole paradigm, I'm going to give you some key words for each part of it. The framework that we've been talking about for the last 12 weeks is this, that the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. What's the Bible about? In one word, it is about Jesus. I've been encouraging you to memorize John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, Jesus said. It's all about me, and if you miss Jesus, you've missed the point of the scriptures. The next is the pillar, the first pillar that we talked about, the character of the Bible. The Bible is both human and divine, and to negate or ignore one aspect of that will shortchange you And so it's important to recognize that there is both a human side and a divine side to the scriptures if you're going to read it and read it with understanding. And then secondly, the second pillar was this, that the Bible is unified. What the Bible teaches as a whole is true, is true, that you can't just pick and choose and pull things out of context. You have to look at what the Bible teaches as a whole if you want to understand the Bible. It is a unified work. It is also messianic in its focus. The Bible is the story of God's setting things right through his son. The whole Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament leading up to, pointing towards, setting the precedent for Jesus coming, Jesus offering then himself as a sacrifice for our sins, and now Jesus living his life through his body, which is you and I, the church of Jesus. The Bible is the story of God setting things right through his son. It's messianic literature, but it's also meditation literature. The Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. And we've talked about how it's not just a movie that you watch or a book that you read and then set it on the shelf. It was designed for ongoing reflection and for 
ongoing response. And the more that you do that, the more reward, the more yield you get. And the yield that you get is wisdom. It is wisdom literature. The goal of the Bible is human flourishing. That's why God gave us his word, because he wants us to flourish. He wants us to benefit from that wisdom. And then last week, we talked about the sixth pillar, that like all literature, the Bible is contextual. If you want to understand it, you have to read it and understand it in the context that it was written. We're talking about the language. We're talking about the culture. We're talking about the type of literature that it is because there are multiple different types of literature in the Bible because the Bible is actually a collection of different types of literature. And in order to understand it, you have to understand it's contextual. And we said that context is king. If you want to know the number one interpretive principle, it's that you look at the scriptures in their context, which are all the things that we talked about. And the last pillar that we will use in understanding, reading and understanding the Bible is this, that the Bible is communal literature. The way I put it is that the Bible read in community, read in community, yields better insight and greater safeguards, better insight and greater safeguards, better insight. You can, and I encourage you to read the Bible on your own. However, it was actually, as we will see, designed to be read and understood and lived out in community with other people who are reading and seeking to understand and seeking to live out the scriptures as well. What happens when you do this is number one, you're going to get better insight. I've experienced, I've heard others express this experience that one of the benefits of the way we do church and getting together and just having a little bit of discussion amongst ourselves is that often somebody will say something in that discussion that sticks with us and is actually the best thing that we get out of that day's interaction. No offense to the music or to the preacher, but sometimes it's that interaction. It's talking it out. It's hearing what other people are hearing and noticing that gives us greater, better, more insights. The other thing that it does when you read it in community and is that you have greater safeguards. Perhaps if anything, uh, one, of the, one of the lessons of the last several years is how people, when they are isolated from alternate points of view, can go down a rabbit hole, believe incredible, unbelievable things, and do, in some cases, very evil and unwelcome things because they didn't have any relational safeguards. Nobody to say to them, that's crazy. Do you believe that? Do you really think that this is going to accomplish this, that this is a good thing to do? There was nobody in their life that knew what was going on and then could speak into their life. Now, sometimes, I'll be honest with you, people who love Jesus, who are in community, come up with some crazy, stupid ideas about what the Bible says. But there will be less of that if we are interacting, reading the Bible 
in community. And in fact, the Bible Project makes the point that this is the way the Bible was designed and experienced right from the very start. Remember that this whole series was inspired by a podcast series. The link is still in your growth guide. If you haven't been listening along, you need to catch up, please do listen to that. It's great stuff, and I would encourage you to continue to uh, listen through this series. But this is the way they describe it. They say the Bible is communal literature. The Bible was designed, see that keyword designed, to be read and studied and lived out. I added that. They described it in a different way after this, but basically that's the idea. Read, studied, and lived out within a community. Now, where do they get that? Well, in part because of the way the Bible was dis- what came about. Uh, the second point, at the time in history when Moses was recording and writing the Torah, the Torah is, of course, the instruction, means the instruction. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's the, the start the start of the Bible. So they're going back to the very beginning and saying, look, when when this was getting going, the process of teaching and studying those scriptures happened orally as a community. In other words, it was done out loud. It did get recorded, but that was more to preserve it for history and then to be able to orally present it. And you see examples throughout the scriptures of the Bible being read in community out loud. And actually, as an aside, one of the reasons why I trust the documents of the New Testament, not only are they ridiculously close in time to the events that they portray as opposed to other ancient literature. For example, most of the documents in the New Testament were, all of them were written within decades of the events that they describe. For many things in history that we take as a given, it might be hundreds of years before we have documentation, hundreds of years between when that happened and the documentation that we have of those happenings. So already it's just crazy, ridiculous, close in time. But even so, there were decades in some cases between what happened and what was recorded. But I have absolute confidence in the scriptures because they lived in a different context. There's that word again, where things were preserved, memorized, and communicated orally. In other words, they memorized it. They retold the stories over and over again. Sue Ellen and I got engaged 30 years ago. I have told the story of our engagement untold numbers of time. I don't need to have that written down in order for me to tell the story. I don't have to say, oh, what was that again? And look at a book. No, it's because it's a story that I know, that I experienced, that I told over and over again. And that's the way the scriptures were preserved for hundreds and thousands of years and also what led to their being recorded in writing. So that's one thing. It was it started out as an oral presentation and it continues to be understood and read orally. Lastly, this is an interesting point. Most ancient religions belong to the elite and privileged of a society. Some of you may have heard of Gnosticism, which was a religious movement that d- developed in the years shortly after Christianity developed, and the whole idea of Gnosticism, it's based on the word 
Gnosticism is based on the word for knowledge, and it was the idea that there was this secret knowledge that only a select few could be introduced to, and that really that was the idea of many religious movements and religious perspectives, and this is what they're tapping into. Most ancient religion belonged to the elite and the privileged of a society, especially when it came to studying sacred text. Now, in our culture, we have a Bible everywhere, and people who don't even value or read the Bible probably have a Bible and are certainly able to access one now. But that was that's an anomaly in history. Most of the time, people did not have access to the sacred text. So the public reading of scripture as an entire people group, which is what we see in the earliest examples of the scriptures, contributed to the democratic nature of biblical religion. It was available and meant for all People. It wasn't just for the select few, it was for everyone, and so they published it as widely as they could, and in the days before publishing and printing presses, that meant speaking, that meant orally presenting over and over again, and now, of course, we do the same thing through the printing press and through now the internet as well. So, interesting point. Um, but the whole thing makes the point that the Bible was always read, understood, and lived out in community. So that's the pillar. Now let me give you the principle that is transformational. When you come into any situation, including a church, but you can think of this as your family, you can think of this as your workplace, you can think of this as your school, you can think of this as your neighborhood, When you come into a situation, the default that we have is what's in it for me. In other words, if I'm going to take this job, what's in it for me? What's my pay? What are the benefits? Will I enjoy it? Very good. If I decide to move into a community to buy a house, well, what... what, What's the value of the house? Does it have all the bedrooms and bathrooms that I need? Do I like the location? Uh, If I'm going to choose a school to go to, well, is it going to give me the education I want? Do they have the major that I'm seeking? Do uh, do I like the area where that school is? uh, These are legitimate questions. What's in it for me? And when you come into a church, they're legitimate. You know, am I going to get something out of it? Is it going to meet my needs? Am I going to grow? All perfectly legitimate questions. But I'm going to suggest to you an even greater question. A question that has the power to, after you've taken all those other things into concern, into consideration, to transform and give meaning and purpose to where you find yourself in all of those different locales and locations and choices that it'll, it'll just transform the way that you look at it and give you greater purpose. And here's how I'm gonna say it. The question is not what, but who. The question is not what, but who. And I'll explain that in a little bit. So I'm gonna challenge you at the end to show up to serve others Because today what we're talking about is attendance. Now, 
attendance has the idea of, okay, I'm going to take attendance who showed up today. But I also have heard attending used in educational settings to talk about how well a student can, for example, participate, keep track of, pay attention to what's going on in the class. And so I'm using it in the show up sense, but I'm also using it in the what are you paying attention to? What are you focused on? To what are you attending? And the question is not what, but who. Let me read the scripture, and then we'll talk about it and make some application. Uh, the scripture that I want to read to you is uh, a scripture that Jesus is interacting with his disciples, and it's a key teaching that is prompted by a particular request that some of the disciples made. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. And this is what it says. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Another translation that actually says, we want you to do whatever we ask. You know, if you're a parent, you know when your kids come to you and say, we want you to do whatever we ask. That's like, boop, boop, red flag. You know, you, and evidently it's the same for disciples as well. Teacher, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? Jesus asked. They replied, <clears throat> when you sit on your glorious throne, in other words, when you come into your kingdom, when uh, everything is set right and you're in charge, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. Two brothers, we want the best spots. Verse 38. <clears throat> but Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Verse 41, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, <clears throat> You know what the rulers in this world, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over the, um, those under them. But among you, it will be different. I love that. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as I look around and th think of the people that make up our congregation, so many of them have a servant's heart, and I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage that, that that would be the norm, that other-centered living will distinguish us as your followers, our love for one another. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply this principle evenly and thoroughly throughout the various 
aspects of our lives. That you will speak to each heart here in this room right now, those who are listening and watching later. And Lord, may this all happen to your glory and for your kingdom's purposes and your sake. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, just as a reminder, we're on site. That's avail- You can see what's going on. We're now settled into a pretty good schedule here, so that's good. You can pretty much depend on 11 a.m. Sunday mornings. We also are continuing to make it available online and on demand on a week's delay. So this message that we are recording today will be available online one week from today. And everything that we do is designed to inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, because we know that following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life and brings glory to God in the process. And if especially you're watching online and you're new to Cornerstone, we would love to be able to welcome you personally. And one of the ways that we can do that and keep in touch with you is if you let us know who you are by texting NEW to 603-225-2550. All right, I said the, the transformational principle is this. The question is not what but who. Let me expand that a little bit. The question is not what's in it for me, but instead, who am I here for? Or for you English teachers, for whom am I here? Uh, what, what is the purpose? Why am I here? Why am I in this particular place? And when you begin to realize that it's not about what's in it for you, but what you can contribute to others, that will transform your life. It will transform your perspective. It will dramatically, dramatically transform your relationships. Let's see how this principle was displayed in this passage that we looked at. When you sit on your glorious throne, the brothers asked, we want to sit in places of honor. Now, they had been following Jesus for a little while. They knew what was ahead, so they thought. They knew that he was the king, that he was the Messiah, that he was going to be in a place of authority, glory, and honor. And they were thinking, hey, you know, there's 12 of us. Who's going to get those best two spots? Why not us? <laughs> why, why not us? Why, if, if there's going to be good stuff that's going to be handed out, then why don't we see if we can get in and get the best slots for us? Then look at what happened with the rest of the disciples. They had a indignant response, Mark says. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Why? Why? Because they were trying to cut the line. They were saying, hey, there's 12 of us, and they're trying to get an advantage. They want to get more out of this relationship, more out of their sacrifice than we are, and so they became indignant. The whole perspective of all 12, and you also hear in another gospel that was actually uh, James and John's mother that got involved in it as well. So let's say 13. All 13 of them were looking for what they could get out of their relationship with Jesus. 
Now, Jesus uses this as a teachable moment because he recognizes what's going on. He recognizes that they want power and authority. Why? Not so that they can serve others. Remember, remember the teaching on authority? All authority belongs to God. It's loaned to us as a stewardship so that we can benefit the people under our authority. But that was not their perspective. They were thinking if we have power and authority, that's going to be good for us. We can leverage that for our benefit. So Jesus uses this as a teachable moment and he says these key words, but among you, you who are my disciples, you who are following me, you who claim the name of Jesus, among you, it will be different. Not even it should be different, although that's certainly implied. He states it as fact. Among you, it will be different. We're going to do things differently in this circle. And how does he describe it? Whoever wants to be a leader among you, you want to be the top dog, you want to be in control, you want to be large and in charge, whoever wants to be a leader among you will be, must be your servant. Take the lowest position. And whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of everyone else. In other words, willingly choose to be put in a place of servitude to others. And in case you think, Jesus is saying, in case you think I'm doling out advice that I don't follow, that this is a rule for you but not for me, he flips it around and says, in fact, this is what I'm doing. In Mark 10:45, he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served. Now think about this for just a second. Son of man is a, is a, is a divine title. And he's saying, uh, even the one who has, the man who has this divine title, who has the power and authority of God came not to say, hey, bow down and serve me. But instead, I'm going to leverage all of my power, all of my authority for your benefit. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think about this when Jesus said that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And here he talks about his sacrifice, giving his life. And yes, there may be a time where we may be called upon to literally give our life for others, but more likely it's going to be in the day-to-day decisions that we make where we leverage our life, give our life, spend our time. Time is life. When you run out of time, you have run out of life. When you give your life for the benefit of others. So what if, when you went into a situation like a church, for example, and your question is not, well, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? But instead, how can I serve And who am I there for? For whom has God placed me and called me to this place? I'm a pastor now, yes. 
I might not always be a pastor, but I can tell you that if I go into any other church, when if I have the opportunity to just shop for a church, the question that I will have, the predominant question will not be, what am I going to get out of it? But where has God called me to serve and for whose benefit? To what purpose? And that shouldn't be just for pastors. That should be for every follower of Christ. I think that your life should be determined by calling and service. Where are you called? And why has God called you to that particular place? Because the question is not what, but who. So let me work through a couple of the implications. And this will be the part where you share with your friends who aren't here, who are in your small group, but haven't been showing up on Sunday morning or whatever the case may be. But it's also a safeguard to you because there are going to be a time where you'll ask that question. Do I really need to show up in order to be a part of a congregation? Do I need community or can I just do with the content? The question is not what, but who. Here's something to think about. You may be here for someone who's not here yet. Think about this. When you come into a particular setting, including a new church, one of the first things that you're likely to do is to look around and say, is there anybody that looks like me? I'm not talking about are they bald or are they a certain height or something like that, but you think about... Is there anybody that I can relate to that's in a similar situation to me? As a church planter in a small church, I can't tell you how many times people have come in and said, oh, I like the church, but it doesn't have X or there aren't enough X. You know, fill in the blank. It could be youth. It could be older people. It could be people with families, people with small children, people with teenagers, you fill in the blank. And what's frustrating about that is that then these people come in and then they don't stay. And then the next people came in and say, oh, I, I really love the church, but I, you don't have, well, we did, they showed up last week, but they're not here <laughs> this week. But there may be somebody that you're here for, that's not here yet. It's something to consider. Uh, when the Apostle Paul was describing his approach to evangelism, to getting the gospel out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is part of what he said. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. And he's talking about, you know, there, there are Gentiles. I try to relate to Gentiles. I try to find common ground with them. There are observant Jews that follow the strict laws. Well, I, I understand that world. I try to find common ground with them. Whoever it is, I try to find common ground so that I can build on that and then bring them along towards Christ because the point is to bring people to Christ. And so in the same way, I never 
am frustrated when new churches pop up. I celebrate new churches popping up. Why? Because it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. And within a church, the more diversity that you have, the more kinds of people in different stages of life with different experiences, the more likely it is that someone will be able to find common ground. I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. So if you're in a church, you're in a situation, you're in a setting where you don't feel like you belong or you don't quite have the same experience as everyone else, it might be if God is calling you to that place that you're there for someone who is not there yet. Now, it doesn't mean you have to stay in one particular place forever, but If God is calling you to a place, it just might be for the common ground that someone else will share with you. Because the question is not what, but who. And let me make this observation. Being being at meeting is being a part, is a part of what it means to be on mission. Being at meeting is part of what of being on mission. Now, that doesn't mean everything I didn't say, showing up on Sunday morning is everything you need to do. No, but it can be a part, and it is a part. Why? Well, let's look at the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples. What is our calling? It is to make disciples of all the nations, every type of people group. Uh, that's, that's not just flagged nations. That means every ethnicity, every people group, every culture. That's what that word means. We make disciples of all kinds of people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We bring them into faith. And then teaching these new disciples to obey everything all the commands I have given you. That is the discipleship maturing process. Now, if a person is going to explore faith in Christianity, what are the kinds of things they do? They might read a Bible, they might watch something online, but eventually, for most people, that means I need to get into a church. I need to find a church. And if there's not a church congregation for them to connect with, then the mission drops off. Let's just say you are dogged, you're doggedly on mission and you're building relationships and you're bringing people to faith. But what's the next step you're going to want to do once you have ex- built this relationship, invested in this person, explained the gospel to them over and over again, and they finally cross the line of faith. You're going to want to Bring them into a community of people who are like-minded, who can encourage and build and strengthen their faith. You have to show up. And there has to be a place where people show up. Because this whole process assumes that you need two things. You need both content and community. You need content and community. There's certain stuff, content, that you need to know. There's a certain, there are bullet points to the gospel that you need to know. There are things that if you're going to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded, you need the content. Well, what is it that Jesus commanded? But you also need community. Baptism 
is the public communal expression of your relationship with Jesus. When it says get baptized, it doesn't mean go in your tub by yourself and dunk yourself. That's not what it's describing, right? It's a community experience and teaching them is a community experience. Why? Because you get better insight and greater safeguards when you read the Bible in community. You need both content and community. In our world, a local church like ours cannot compete on content. You see, I hope that you think I'm a good enough preacher that you show up week in and week out, but I guarantee you with a five-minute search on the internet, you can find a better message than you're going to hear this morning. A local church cannot cannot compete on content. But the internet, YouTube, Facebook cannot compete with the local church on community. YouTube is not going to call you up and say, hey, I noticed that you haven't been showing up for a while. What's What gives? Facebook is not going to call you and say, hey, I noticed that there seems to be some tension in your relationship with your parents. Can we talk about that? You need both content and community, and you can only get community in community. And so when we encourage people to follow Jesus and say yes to Jesus, not only do they get a new relationship with their heavenly Father through Jesus and what he did on the cross for us, the forgiveness of sins, not only do they get a new life, a new author to the rest of their story because he is now the Lord, he get, we, we get brothers and sisters as well. We get adopted into a family. And you are there in part for the benefit, not just for what you'll get out of it, but for the benefit of those other people in the community because the question is not what, but who. Lastly, serving, showing up and serving in particular is a safeguard that keeps you on the right track. If a person starts showing up at Cornerstone, one of the main goals that I have is to get them in a place of service immediately. Why? Because it's going to, number one, help fulfill their mission. You, you, you need to be on mission. You need to be serving. But the other thing that it does is it keeps you connected. You're now most likely connected with a team because you're serving and you have a reason to show up. And that can be a safeguard to you. I was listening to a podcast. It's actually a business podcast, although is uh, the business and the podcast was started by a, a person who started out his career as a Christian memoirist. And he, we were he, in the context of this conversation, they were talking about how um, this. Uh, it was the same kind of question: Why, you know, when you go into a situation, you be there. There might be somebody that you're there for, as opposed to what you get out of it. And this is what he said. His name is Donald Miller. Wrote a most famous book that you might be familiar with is Blue Like Jazz. He said, everything we want, he just made this as an offhand comment. I immediately wrote it down. It's like, that's, that's right. Everything we want from being selfish, we get from being selfless. So the, the things that we think, oh, if I just do this and this and me, 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 actually that's not going to get you what you want. But when we give our life away, when we serve others, 
that's when we actually find the purpose, the meaning, the benefit that we have been looking for. The Bible describes the same thing. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus said, as each part, each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Jesus said the same kind of thing. I put this in your growth guide that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So what's the transformational concept? It's that you might not be in this particular situation for what you get out of it, but you might be in your family, in your school, in your workplace, in your church for someone else, for the benefit of others. Who are those people? Here's where we get into the practical side of it. Just list them. Who, who are you here for? You know, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm Sue Ellen's husband. There's nobody else in the world that can fulfill that role right now. I, that's unique to me. I'm here for her. There are, there are certain kids that call me dad. I am here on this earth for them. I am in this congregation as your pastor. I'm here for you. I'm here to serve you. You are in a particular school or neighborhood or workplace, maybe not for the paycheck you get or the grade you get or for the house that you're living in, but for the people, the who that is around you. So let's show up. Let's attend. Let's pay attention to that and answer the question, not what's in it for me, but for whom am I here? So here's my challenge to you. Here's the practical step that you can use this. Show up with the idea to serve others. Come in on a Sunday morning, not, oh, I sure hope Brian's on his game today because I really need to hear something. I hope I'm on my game. I hope you hear something from God today. But I want your perspective to be, I'm here for somebody else. God, I'm here for somebody else. Show me how you want to use me to encourage, to lift somebody up, to be there for someone. I'm going to show up to serve others. That's going to be my mindset when I go into school. Not just can I get a good grade or can I get this degree, but God's placed me here for a particular reason, and that reason might be the people that he has surrounded me with. This one principle God may have you someplace not for what you get out of it, but for whom you can pour into will transform your perspective and your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the selfless sacrifice that you demonstrated for us in sending your Son I thank you, Lord, that you showed us, you were gracious enough to show us the true path to fulfillment and getting the things that we need, and that's by selflessly serving others, being others-centered. And I pray, Lord, that we as a people would follow your example and show up not to be served, but to serve, to leverage our lives for the benefit of others. Thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.